With sports car racing news and analysis from around the globe, this is the Double Stint Podcast. Here's John DeGeese and Ryan Marie. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Double Stint, Sports Car 365's Sports Car Racing Podcast here in Indianapolis. I'm Ryan Marine. John DeGeese is back in Chicago. Joining us for another episode here as we look back on the weekend that was the IMSA WeatherTech Sports Car Championship Racing at VIR. Championships decided in Fanatec GT World Challenge Europe powered by AWS Endurance Cup uh, racing at Barcelona. A ton of news actually in the last week and some good listener questions before we preview this weekend's Indianapolis 8-hour and a whole lot more. We'll start in VIR, though. That's where you were, John, with a Saturday race for the WeatherTech Championship, GT only, and it was won overall by Corvette Racing. Uh, Nick Tandy and Tommy Milner got the win, but there was a whole lot that went into it. Even with just three cars in the GTLM class, there was no shortage of fireworks, were there? No, not at all. It was one of the most intense GTLM races I think we've seen all year um, in terms of the level of contact between these cars. um, There was a point where all three of them were basically going nose, you know, basically going at it um, for for the for the win in, in the final hour ultimately like you said it went to Nick Tandy um, who was in the driving duties of the number uh, four Corvette at the end um, he overcame some uh, a charge by Kevin Estra um, Antonio Garcia was in the mix as teammate um, these cars were kind of duking it out and had quite a bit of contact um, between them over the course of about a 10 minute period but um, no penalties, no issues of any kind uh, stemming from the, the contact. Um, Kevin Estra ended up going off course at Oak Tree uh, a few minutes later, but I don't, I don't think it was related to the contact. He, he ended up finishing third, ensuring a Corvette 1-2 result there. So, um, yeah, typically we've, when we've seen GTLM races this year, it's kind of been a pretty mild affair. I think the last crazy race, in my opinion, was Sebring, um, when there was a lot of contact towards the end and it gave way for Matthew Jaminet to take the win for WeatherTech. This time, obviously, Corvette taking the win, but um, still a pretty heated affair. And despite finishing second now, Jordan Taylor and Antonio Garcia are simply a start at uh, Motul Petit Le Mans away from clinching the championship. But quickly back to what we saw in the, the fireworks on track. Uh, Kevin Estra got drafted into this lineup because uh, the two drivers that had been sharing with Cooper McNeil were not available this weekend and he kind of drove like someone who did not have any championship uh, thoughts to think about coming into this race and i thought it was exciting i don't know if it really crossed a line or not i think it was right on that verge but in a lot of respects this is what this class has needed and you know i saw some people on on twitter saying this is kind of vintage gtlm yes we didn't have the numbers but the action was there and I think we needed that a little bit to close out the GTLM era in IMSA with just one race left at Petit Le Mans. Yeah, I, I think so for sure. Um, you know, it was uh, it was a fierce battle for sure, and, and I think Kevin was on the aggressive side. Um, there, there was some people maybe not agreeing with some of his driving tactics, even including former co- former Porsche factory 
co-driver Nick Tandy, but um, in the end, it is what it is. Um, you know, the the WeatherTech guys didn't really have anything there championship-wise. They're just going for wins, so you, don't, you can't really fault them for trying, and um, the Porsche seemed to be the quicker car over the course of the weekend, for sure, so when you factor all those things into it, um, you know, there's certainly different um, components to, to think about. Well, Porsche did not get the win in GTLM, but did in GTD. It was a great drive from the back of the field for FAF Motorsports. Uh, Lawrence Van Thorn, Zachary Robichon, who had to start at the back due to an infringement in qualifying. The, the crew touched the car in between the two GTD qualifying sessions, which you cannot do, so they had to start at the tail. And Robichon put in a storming drive in his stint, and then Van Thor capped it off with a nice drive in the second part of the race, although ultimately they needed a bit of fortune to fall their way, and it did in the form of misfortune for Turner Motorsport late in the race. Yeah, there was contact between Antonio Garcia and Bill Oberlin, who was leading the GTD fight at the time. Garcia seemed to lose control of his Corvette and sort of went into Oberlin. Um, there was no penalty for that incident either. Um, it was kind of a racing thing. I don't think Antonio meant that by any any means. But unfortunately, it left uh, Oberlin with a, a right rear puncture, and uh, he had a pit and uh, relinquished the lead and ultimately going to the Porsche um, guys from FAF again, their fourth win of the season, extending their points lead uh, uh, just marginally because we had the Paul Miller Lamborghini finish second on the day. But it did have big implications because the Turner boys were very much in the championship conversation coming in and looked primed to have the kind of points they they needed to, to really stay in that conversation headed into Motul Petit Le Mans, and from what looked like a prospective win, it turns into something much, much worse with the contact there, and, and that really hurts their championship aspirations. Yeah, they're basically out of the fight. I don't think, maybe maybe not mathematically, but um, right now it, it's really down to two different cars, the, the Paul Miller Lamborghini and the FAF Porsche. Um, third place is the heart of racing, Aston Martin, um, guys of Roscon and Roman DeAngelis, but I think they're just a bit for the too far out unless both of those cars have problems at Petit. Yeah, but it, it was a great drive once again from FAF, and I think the, the, the circumstances surrounding this are quite interesting. Zachary Robichon, you had a story with him, quite frankly doesn't know what 2022 looks like, especially with the plans for this team moving forward might very well feature two pros in the car, two factory pros in all likelihood, and Robichon has drove extre driven extremely well, has been one of the best in the, I guess you'd call it, AM component of GTD. I I'm not sure he's truly an AM, but he's certainly not alone in that respect. But, you know, you don't know what the future looks like for him, and, and having the kind of performances that, that he had, especially in the race, I think that goes a long way to, to helping him secure his position for the future. You would you would think for sure. You know, he, he had a bit of a redeeming run in the in the race. Um, um, there was a bit of a miscue in in qualifying where he had an off course ex excursion, got some grass in the in the radiator, and that's ultimately what led to the the technical the, the sporting regulation infraction with the team touching the car in between sessions, and that's what put the car into the back of the pack um, to start the race and lose. Um, 
I think it was sixth or seventh place qualifying points there, and they were ended up, I think, with 13th place qualifying points. So um, Robichon was a man on the mission right at the beginning of the race, um, jumped, I think, made, made made up like four or five positions in the first couple laps. It was really impressive. So um, he's really shown well this year, and, and hopefully he can find a ride somewhere in the in the in the gtd field next year yep it was a busy weekend though and vir michelin pilot challenge of course racing there over the weekend uh, points battles tightening up there porsche carrera cup north america presented by the cayman islands was in action also imsa prototype challenge racing at vir you can find full coverage of all the imsa action up at sportscar365.com including the weekend notebooks the session reports and post-race reaction on the WeatherTech Championship side of things up there on the website. It was also the championship decider for Fanatec GT World Challenge Europe, uh, powered by AWS Endurance Cup. That was at Barcelona. ACA ASP did everything they could to try and uh, clinch a championship, ultimately winning the race but falling short in the title hunt to the Spa 24 winning trio from Iron Links. Alessandro Pierguidi, Com Ledegar, and Nicholas Nielsen ultimately did what they needed to do to win the championship by coming home seventh in the three-hour race. That then is the second consecutive Endurance Cup championship now for Pierre Guidi, the second in the career for Ledegar, going back to his first in 2016, but the first for the youngster Nicholas Nielsen, who's having quite a season across multiple championships. I guess the same can be said for all three of these drivers. Remarkable stuff, though, from them, and that trio will be in action this weekend at the Indianapolis eight hour more on that in a moment but the other championships also were decided in the endurance cup silver cup going to the emil frey racing trio of ricardo feller alex fontana and rolf nyken while pro-am was won outright by chris froggett of sky tempesta racing all of dan lloyd's coverage from barcelona of course also up at sportscar365.com news of the week now john and we'll start with news that came out shortly after this podcast was published one week ago so it's our first chance to chew over it in audio form alpine confirming that it will go prototype racing as we've long expected and not a huge surprise lmdh is the chosen platform with a program set to start in the wec in 2024 Yes, um, partnerships with Signatech and Orica will continue, um, and there's been a hint of some customer cars, too, for, for this program. So um, lots coming out of France with the first um, European-based I say WEC focused LMDH program, you could say, because um, both, you know, there's going to be other LMDHs in the in the full season WEC season, obviously, with Porsche and Audi, and, and then the, the Cadillac program, but with um, this Alpine program, it's not set or scheduled or slated to do any kind of racing in America. Obviously, the brand is not visible in America. They don't sell cars there. Renault is not there at all either. The closest thing you can get in America is a Nissan, but there doesn't seem to be anything um, cooking on, on that side of the, the the, the program right now so um, it's really interesting to see this program get confirmed this way and and have you know it, it sort of puts the whole LMDH platform again with more even more importance to make sure the balance of performance gets gets 
correctly between LMH and LMDH. So um, certainly there's um, a, a lot of uh, excitement there from from the various manufacturers joining, and I think um, it's good to see another manufacturer formally committing to the, the platform. It is, and I thought some interesting quotes in a reaction story that, that we had from the Alpine side of things about the decision to go LMDH over LMH and the balance of performance was something that was cited. So again, to your point, that that's going to be crucial to get that right with so many big budget programs relying on having an equal playing field to work in. But certainly the cost of LMH was cited as being prohibitive for Alpine. This is a, a manufacturer that has a chance to, to go with its free spending approach in Formula One. And so something more budget oriented in sports cars seems to make some sense. And I think it speaks volumes for the entire thought process behind LMDH that, again, more and more manufacturers are seeing this as a logical step for them to be involved in in sports car racing, whether that's the continuation of a program or something new at this level as it is for Alpine. Uh, exactly. You know, um, you can build an LMDH for far less than an LMH and and maintain your, your partnership with Orica in this case. So it, it, it's a real, no, a real, you know, win-win situation i think for all involved i think the big question coming out is all right we know the start time start date 2024 for this program there has been talk about trying to continue with this grandfathered lmp1 car they're using in the world endurance championship right now for at least one more year but it seems like there's an expiration date to that and that would be at the conclusion of, of 2022. So what does 2023 look like? Would Alpine be involved in some capacity? And if so, what would that be? Yeah, I, I, we don't know yet. Um, it seems maybe a little early to, to say, but I would agree with you in, in the thought process that I don't think the ACO would grandfather an LMP1 car for three seasons in the WEC. I think two would definitely be the max. Um, could they go into LMP2 just for a year in between? Like they've done... Like where they were previously, or could there be a garage 56 entry of some kind um, to prepare for? Um, who knows? I, I think that there's some options on the table right now, and um, they're evaluating the, um, them right now. From one LMDH program to another, uh, we had the first, I guess you could say, confirmed LMDH driver. There have been plenty that we've reported on that we expect will be officially announced with manufacturers, but Nico Moeller came out on Twitter and said, I've signed a new contract with Audi and I will be an LMDH driver for them. So that's great to see. What else do we know about, I guess maybe we should set the table here, you know, what drivers do we have linked with different manufacturers at this stage and, and you know, what, what kind of news might be coming out here in the, the weeks and months to come? Yeah, this was kind of a surprise social media announcement, and I guess in the day and age of social media announcements, we had a whole manufacturer announce That's their right. program um, with Marcus Flash and on Instagram, and now we have Nico Mueller uh, announcing the, himself as an LMDH driver, so um, I, I don't know if this was done on purpose or not, but um, certainly it's not a huge surprise. I think he was definitely, he's definitely within the mix of drivers that were going to be signed, so, um, you know, by my count, I, I think... It's him, Calvin uh, uh, van der Linde, um, Rene Rast, Robin Freins. I think those are the expected LMDH drivers that are exist that are on Audi's payroll already right now. Um, other drivers that could potentially join from 
existing outside parties right now, I would think, could be um, Ali Jarvis, Harry Tinknell. Um, uh, there's been rumors of, of some others as well. So um, we'll have to wait and see what exactly happens. You know, another another good candidate actually could be Louis Delatraz, um, who's driven for WRT this year in LMP2. Um, I, I think he would make a, for a very good factory driver as well. So um, let's wait and see. Maybe we'll get some more clarity in the coming weeks. Um, Audi has kind of been one of the mysterious manufacturers right now with not revealing much information about its program exactly and we're still not sure entirely how the factory landscape will be for this program whether it'll be just a wec pro factory program or could there be some imsa races added to that with maybe wrt operating that side of things we'll have to wait and see but um in terms of their driver lineup this is what we know of right now and if it's a case of drivers announcing their own contracts then i guess that's the way things are going on right now in this new world it is different that's for sure outside of audi uh, i guess we kind of talked some about cadillac uh, on a, on a previous show but how about some of the other manufacturers any names that we have pretty solidly linked to some of the other lmdh brands um, it's still a bit early to to say but i'm um, building off the cadillac um uh, news that we had in, in previous weeks. We got the word this week, the last week, that Mike Rockefeller is actually parting ways with Audi um, after 15 years with the manufacturer. So he won't be part of the Audi LMDH program. We believe he's headed most likely to Cadillac, um, potentially as a replacement to Felipe Nasser in the Action Express car next year. Um, we'll have to wait and see if that is true or not. Um, there's a lot of speculation and rumors going on right now, so it's hard to really pin things down. But it looks like that probably is his de potential destination there. Um, Acura is going to probably need at least one new driver with Dane Cameron off to Penske and, and Porsche. Um, we're not, there's been rumors of Ryan Hunter Ray potentially being in frame there. Um, again, that's a rumor. We're not really sure where that stands as well. So, um, yeah, uh, Ferrari um, with LMH, there hasn't been much talk on drivers lately, but we believe most of their GT GTE drivers will be moving up. Um, the factory GT drivers will be moving up to the LMDH program, and I'm trying to think about any other manufacturers. Porsche, obviously, um, as I said with Cameron, most likely Felipe Nasser, based on our sources, um, and, and some a lot of the existing Porsche drivers moving up as well. Well, it'll be fun to keep an eye on this driver carousel as it starts to kick into high gear. We've had all the fun with manufacturer announcements, and in all likelihood, we're not done with those just yet. But then the next wave is is this piece of the puzzle, and it's it's always fun to keep an eye on the silly season. And it's starting early. We're looking already ahead to 2023 and 2024, and we're talking about drivers for programs like that. And here it is, still 2021. So. Uh, keep an eye on social media as well, because you never know where the news might come from. How about some news out of Barcelona this past weekend? Normally, the SRO has its uh, big, you might call it the state of the series, press conference at the Total Energy's 24 Hours of Spa that was pushed back this year and just was held over the weekend at Barcelona. And a few things to touch on here. The top one probably is the unveiling of the Intercontinental GT Challenge powered by Pirelli Calendar for 2022. 
Of note is the return of the Liquimali Panthers 12-hour. More on that in just a second. Also of note that the Suzuka race, once again, does not feature on the calendar. However, IMS and Kyle Lamy both remain as fixtures on what is now a four-race schedule for IGTC. But the, the big but as it comes to this story is the date of Bathurst, specifically it falling, falling on the Super Sebring weekend that involves not just the Mobile One 12 Hours of Sebring, but also the WEC round at the Florida Airport Circuit 2. And this date, when it was announced, I think it's safe to say, John, caught a lot of people off guard and, and has some people, uh, rightly, I think, frustrated and angry. Yeah, it's pretty catastrophic, if you would ask me. Um, I'm, it's still taking a lot for me to to rationalize and to understand why this race is being held on this specific weekend. We we haven't gotten a comment from Stefan Rattel on this yet, and I'm sure we will be tracking him down over the course of the weekend at Indy to get some further clarity on this. Um, my suspicion is that Supercars, the promoter of this event, um, probably dictated the date, and maybe it could it potentially could be out of SRO's hands. Um, SRO does not promote this race; they are a partner in the in the in the events organization, but it's very much run by Supercars um, down there. So, uh, let's give it the benefit of the doubt on that side. But where does this leave international participation? Just as the international borders are opening, it doesn't make much sense to even have this race be part of Intercontinental if we're going to have a lot of drivers and potentially other manufacturers not being able to commit due to clashing events with going on at Sebring. And I can understand if it clashes with an IMSA race or a WEC race, but clashing with quite arguably the second most important WEC race and the second most important IMSA race of the season and an endurance classic of its own right is just ludicrous. Um, I, I I don't know what much more to say. It's um, extremely frustrating, and I'm sure I'm not the only one feeling this um, from the various drivers, some teams, um, other media uh, that cover both of these events all the time. It, it, it's... Um, it's just a bit unheard of. Um, the one thing we do know is that the race is not fully confirmed. It all depends on the opening of the international borders in Australia, which are still closed for the time being right now. But um, the prime minister has said that they're, they're, they've revealed plans recently to open the borders starting in November, I believe, and um, returning uh, international travel to Australian citizens first, and then followed by um, tourists um, overseas entering the country with, I think, um, a proof of vaccination. So it very much looks like this is going to move forward. I just hope that maybe there some some clearer heads can prevail and, and we can maybe have a change of date, move the race back a week or forward a week um, to prevent this, this major clash from happening. Yeah, that's my hope and my thought as well. There's still a lot of time between now and then, and especially in a world that is still dealing with COVID. There are a lot of things that can change. So whether this is organizers making changes or having changes forced upon them by circumstance, I, it seems to me that there's still a very high probability that something does alleviate this clash between now and then. We, we will see. But certainly it is a, a, a huge frustration to have two of the major endurance racing events on the calendar somehow scheduled for the same weekend so yeah we'll have to keep an eye on that and hopefully as you say cooler heads prevail and and uh, people can 
can find a way to, to find a solution to this problem. Looking at the rest of the schedule, though, it's a bummer about Suzuka not being on the calendar. I know that that's, that's a frustration on the SRO side of things, too. That was an event that seemed to be growing before COVID hit, and yeah. it seems like, the as we've seen with GT World Challenge Asia these past two seasons, just so much uncertainty with border crossings and trying to make logistics work in Asia right now. That, that has caused this to be yet another casualty? Well, I wouldn't really necessarily read into the Asian situation of COVID. It's, it, 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 based on what I have seen, it looks like it might be an issue with the promoter GTA, um, the, the promoters of Super GT, trying to reclaim that event as a Super GT round for next year. So latest that I've heard is that that event will go back to potentially being a round on the Super GT calendar and not an eight-hour race. It'll be a 1,000-kilometer race, um, as it traditionally had been prior to a couple years ago. And I think that that's the reason why we don't see Suzuka on the intercontinental calendar for next year. I don't think it's COVID-related. I think it's actually a contractual decision by GT Association. Again, this was not an event promoted by SRO. So um, it's really unfortunate to see it move this way if this is indeed the case. Um, We'll have to get some more clarity again talking to Stefan this week hopefully to figure out the details yeah but um yeah that that is a shame if that is indeed the way it's going the the stability though at least having Indianapolis return and Kyle Lamy back on the calendar too uh, those two it seems to be are, are kind of slotting into their spots within the IGTC rotation especially with the strength of the grid for Indianapolis coming up this weekend I think that's the one of the two that has the most question marks about its future given IMSA's desire and the Speedway's desire to have IMSA uh, and have a, an endurance race uh, of some kind with uh, with that series at the track in the future but you know it does seem like we're getting closer at least to the kind of IGTC calendar that the SRO envisioned when they initially went to what was planning on being a five-round calendar with stops on multiple continents and it really seems to be if they could ever get get the world to cooperate with them that this this they're they're awfully close to getting this vision to to work out and at least in an era of uncertainty these two races seem to have some consistency to them yeah we had it one year for five rounds in 2019 and that was with um laguna seca instead of indianapolis but um yeah i I think it's looking good where you know spa indy and kyle ami sit i think those are definitely fixtures hopefully um the the this weekend's offended indy can just solidify that on the u.s um, side of things a couple of other things to get to from that press conference we got an update on the sro america schedule you made reference earlier to the fact that the uh, SRO America date at VIR has been shifted. That is to accommodate the 24 hours of Le Mans. That was initially going to be a clash, but that change was made. The other confirmation was the new uh, Ozarks Speedway in Missouri is confirmed as the, the racetrack that was the to be announced on the calendar when it was initially unveiled. I think this is all still pending a financial agreement and FIA homologation, but I know that the series has been out there a number of times and that uh, the intention certainly is to be racing at this new track next year. Yeah, it's great to see that um, sort of materialize. I know, like you said, it's not 100% final, but I, I think it's definitely moving in that direction. Um, unforeseen circumstances probably would only be the reason why we wouldn't be seeing SRO America at Ozarks next year. And um, we're expecting Lamborghini Super Trofeo to be part of 
be part of that weekend bill as well. Super Trofeo North America, obviously. So um, that's great news. Um, uh, so we'll have an IMSA-sanctioned series on the, the weekend as well. Um, certainly... Um, good to see a new ve- a new track, a new venue join uh, the the North American um, sports car landscape. I'm I'm really looking forward to seeing what this track has to offer. By all accounts, talking to people who have been there to to see the place and evaluate it, it's it's a really fantastic circuit, and and everything was done with the highest standard of quality in mind. So I, I'm excited to see it as well. Looking ahead to next year, assuming everything goes according to plan. Finally, from the SRO press conference, we did get a tentative schedule, at least, for Fanatec GT World Challenge Asia, powered by AWS. The target is a six-round schedule for 2022 to begin in May. But uh, as with so much that we've talked about, this, this particular series has been really hard hit by the uncertainty of the last uh, 18 to 24 months. And, and I think everybody has their fingers crossed that they can get this going without a hitch next year. Yeah, it looks like there's two different options at, at the moment right now, either starting the season in May at Sepang or potentially starting in mid-July at Suzuka. Um, so they're, SROs, you know, smart in a smart move, keeping their options open. We've seen, you know, Asia is still very, very tricky in terms of the logistics and travel. So I, I would think we're probably veering more towards a July start date at Suzuka, but I could be wrong. Um, nonetheless, I, I think this is good um, to get a schedule out there. Um, there's been a lot of um, anticipation for this championship to restart after it being canceled for the last two consecutive seasons. So fingers crossed third time's a charm. And last thing to discuss in the news section this week, we're looking ahead to next year and the introduction of the GTD Pro class in the IMSA WeatherTech Sports Car Championship. Still a bit light on confirmations of who's going to be there, and while BMW certainly hasn't gone that far, all indications are that we will see a couple of the new M4 GT3s on the grid next season and it sounds like john in all likelihood the existing partner bmw team rll the ray hall letterman lanigan rll part of that uh, seems to be back in the frame in all likelihood for next year correct yeah um bmw motorsport director mike crack basically essentially confirmed that that they'll be on the grid in gtd pro still pending a, a lot of um contracts to be finalized and and things to be um situated but i it seems that that Ray Hall will run two cars in GTD Pro, um, which is great to see with the new M4 GT3 platform. Good stuff. More on all those stories and a whole lot more up at sportscar365.com. Now to some listener questions. The first couple come from Dave, who has a question about drivers. He says, where is Tony Vlander gone? It is strange not to see him anywhere. And Dave says, I've not heard his name in a long time and wonder what happened to him? John, any updates? Uh, he's been doing a lot of Ferrari work. He's still contracted to the Italian manufacturer. Um, he's involved in a lot of the, uh, I think, coaching capa- uh, capacities in Ferrari Challenge and and doing other things. It is a good point. I, I don't know why he hasn't been in some of the championships lately. I know he has some F1 commentary duties as well, so um, I, I We'll have to maybe dig into this a little bit further. Yep, I guess so. But like you say, I know he does stay busy on the TV side, part of the Finnish language F1 broadcast. But uh, certainly miss having him around. He was a good character and a really good driver 
as well. Uh, next question also from Dave concerning K-Pax racing. Why is the Lamborghini beating the field by so much in SRO America? 35-second wins are not common in GT3. And Dave says he has to wonder about legality after the Sebring weekend with uh, more factory drivers on the track than normal. He says, I know that Pepper and Calderelli are crazy fast, but not that fast. It's something we talked about some on the podcast previously. I don't really question the legality of anything. I think if there was a problem as far as that's concerned, it would have popped up by now. And I don't necessarily think that's something that KPAX needs to, to be as strong as they've been. The curiosity, as we've talked about before, is why the one lineup from KPAX is that much stronger than the other. Well, I think it's just the way the, the team put the driver pairings together. You would arguably say that Jordan Pepper and Andrea Caldarelli are probably better drivers than Corey Lewis and, and Giovanni Venturini. No offense, but I, I just think that if they spread them out a little bit differently in the lineups, you know, maybe putting Pepper in the second car and moving Corey Lewis to the first car it might have had a little bit of different outcome um, who knows yeah it is an interesting one and it's uh, something we'll have to see if that carries over at all to the eight hour this weekend uh, next question from Ricky Zagata what has led to the following falling out between IndyCar and IMSA he says it's hard to believe that the two used to share race weekends very often now they have several clashing events especially next year's 12 hours of Sebring that's the other angle to the clash on that weekend is uh, that IndyCar is racing at Texas that weekend and that also had some people kind of uh, uh, on edge a little bit um, uh, when that was announced initially I'm not sure I'd characterize it as a falling out though between the two I think IMSA is quite happy with being its own headliner and they have enough support series that they almost need to be in order to to make a weekend work and kind of the same thing with indycar and the road to indy that they have enough programming for a race weekend that it's kind of difficult to to share a weekend with other uh major events outside of you know a couple at detroit and, and long beach and you know the other thing i would say is that from a promoter's perspective I think they can make money on an IndyCar standalone weekend and an IMSA standalone weekend, and if you combine the two, then you lose, you know, you lose a date, you lose a chance to, to sell tickets. Uh, I'm not sure you sell enough more if you combine the two to make up for dropping one. So those are my two thoughts on the subject. Do you have any ideas, John? Yeah, I'd agree with you on that. I, I don't think there is a falling out. I think it's just sort of how things unfolded. Um, as far as I know, the the Texas date for IndyCar is because of a TV deal yeah. with NBC. So um, I don't think it was really done intentionally to try to clash with Sebring. I think it's just with the limited TV opportunities um, NBC has with both series now, um, with the removal of NBC Sports Network at the end of the year. Um, I, I think they're a lot of races are being dictated on the schedules by TV availability. And that was the reason why we had the VIR race actually this weekend, um, which was initially supposed to be Petit Motul, Petit Le Mans weekend prior to the um, schedule shakeup by IMSA. Um, it's all due to TV. Um, there was a, a, a three-hour live NBC network window um, this weekend, and that's why um, VIR got moved on to this particular weekend and not um, any other weekend. So um, it, TV matters a lot these days, I think, and um, there could be arguments made beyond that, of course, of, of the emerging streaming options and everything, but I, I, I am, I'm sort of hoping that, you know, that's the, the case more than anything, and I, I don't think we're really seeing any kind of war between the two different series. I, I think they're 
sort of both both growing in, in, in different ways. I think that's right. Yeah. Good good question though, certainly from you, Ricky. Thanks so much for writing in. And finally from He Who Knows. <laughs> He who knows says, I have a relative who doesn't understand how the FIA's circuit grading system works. Could you please explain that in as much detail as humanly possible? Um, all right, we'll, we'll open the floor to you here, John. What can you say about the FIA's circuit grading? Good question. I don't really have an answer for you. We don't really do much with track gradings, really, on Sports Card 365, so um, maybe it could be a better question meant for uh f1 reporters or, or, or whatnot i don't know um we, we know that f1 all, all tracks have to be on grade one circuits and that's how they're homologated um it's all due to basically run off you know safety measures and, and sizes of runoff areas and 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 whatnot but i don't really have specific details on what that differentiates a grade one to a grade two or a grade two to a grade three. So wish I could help, but um, I don't have the answers for everything. Yeah, I don't have that one either. I have to admit my my ignorance there. I think the, the only exception on the F1 side is I think Monaco kind of got grandfathered in. I'm not sure it's a full grade one circuit, but other than that, I think they are all too to that standard and yeah what exactly delineates grade one from grade two i i'm not sure i could really help you with that either other than yes it is it is a safety feature oriented basically that that's what they're looking for there maybe someone else on the internet can help you out uh, apologize for not being all that helpful this time he who knows but thank you as always for writing in Let's wrap up, John, by looking ahead to this weekend's race, the Indianapolis 8-hour at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. 41 entries on the entry list, including 28 GT3 cars. This makes it far and away the largest North American Intercontinental GT Challenge powered by Pirelli Grid uh, going back to the days where they were racing at Laguna Seca and then, of course, last year at IMS. Some big names on the entry list, including the reigning Total Energy's 24 Hours of Spa winners, champions as well from Endurance Cup and Sprint Cup in GT World Challenge Europe. Plus, we've got at the three-hour mark points being paid to GT World Challenge America Championships, although the, the champions are already decided in each of the three classes uh, there are still other positions up for grabs. So a whole lot to, to keep our eyes on, plus all the support races, too. Yeah, there's going to be a it's going to be a packed week for sure. Um, like you said, 28 GT3 cars in this, by my count, will put this as the largest GT3 grid in North American professional sports car racing history. Um, the 2017 Rolex 24 had a 27 car grid in GT Daytona. So as long as all the cars show up, I think this will be a record breaker, not only for Intercontinental in North America, but in North America altogether. So a lot to be proud of um, from all the folks at SRO America to the mothership in in, the, in Europe um, uh, for all the teams committing to this, this race. Um, you know, sure, it's not a grid like Spa, but um, to get this kind of size, sizable grid in North America is a huge feat, including the GT4 cars that have turned out for this event, too. So um, last year's race was really good, even with a, a reduced field, I think, of 21 or 22 cars. So I um, really can't wait for this one to get going. Yeah, you're right. It's not a spa grid, but I don't think anything is. I mean, this, this actually compares pretty 
pretty well to some of the big grids we've seen at Bathurst over the years as far as GT3 goes. So uh, I think, again, everyone needs to be commended for putting this together still in the middle of a pandemic, it's worth noting. A couple of things quickly to touch on. One is that the track layout is going to be slightly different. This will use the F1 loop at the beginning of the lap, which was not used in the past. I think this has to do with the problems that NASCAR had, actually, with that chicane uh, that that they used on the road course that um, some of the curbing came up in that race. So I know that the SCCA runoffs used this other loop uh, just a couple of weeks ago, and that is the plan for this weekend. And the other thing I'd like to highlight, if you're thinking about coming out to the event Friday night, there will be a downtown parade in Speedway just outside of the track itself from 5.30 to 7.30 and some uh, associated activities along with that. So a number of the cars will be out there and I think some uh, music as well as uh, food and drinks and things of that nature. So it's really cool when they do it at Road America. If you've been to Spa, of course, you've seen it there as well. And it's uh, something that that is is pretty neat to be able to get that close to some of the cars and drivers that will be participating in the race itself. So again, that's Friday night, just outside of the track in downtown Speedway, 5.30 to 7.30 p.m., uh, Friday night for that parade, but a lot of racing. Actually, the first race of the weekend is Thursday with the uh, second-to-last Pirelli GT4 America uh, race of the season. That's at 5 o'clock on Thursday, and then a full slate of racing Friday and Saturday ahead of the eight-hour itself on Sunday. Last thing I will tease is there should be a well-known name as part of the broadcast team that we've not had with us this year that I think will make people happy. It's not my news to announce who it is, but again, I think you'll like it when it is announced, so I'll be on the lookout for that. That's it, I think, for us on the show this week. Thanks to everyone who sent in questions, and also we'd always appreciate a rating and a review on iTunes. We look forward to chatting all about the Indianapolis 8-Hour and a whole lot more next week on our next edition of Double Stints.